Can I just take just a moment, a little vision thing, to reflect on this special that we just did by Dixie Chicks? Is that okay for you guys if I do that? I'm hearing no shouts of no, so I'm going to do it. Uh, just because there could be somebody new to the surge here today, I don't know if there's anybody out there that's brand new, but uh, if you are brand new, you could be thinking after that special, hey, what the world kind of church did I just walk into? And uh, if you've not run screaming from the room, if you're here for the first time, maybe just tell you what kind of a church you walked into this morning. We, we are a church that loves God. We are a church that loves Jesus' followers, and we want them to, want them to be all that God wants them to be. So we teach the Word of God straight up, and we're unapologetic for that. And thirdly, we love people who are not Jesus' followers. It's why we do Generosity Feeds events for hungry kids. It's why we're involved with organizations that recover human trafficking victims and care for teens in crisis and help the homeless and work for social justice. And we're uh, just getting started. But the, it's why we meet in the state theater rather than in a traditional church. We had a traditional church. We sold it. We want to be in a place that makes non-Jesus followers feel at home uh, because it's a place that they hang out in. It's why we have snacks and coffee. It's why we have sometimes funny or entertaining videos even uh, going on before church starts. It's why I'll use wacky slides during a message because no unsaved person ever really believes that a church can be welcoming or fun. And if we surprise them, then, well, you know, all things are possible. That's why we do a song off the radio that ties into the message for that week. People who don't know Jesus probably aren't that familiar with worship songs. But if they come in and they hear a song that they're somewhat familiar with, they begin to feel just a little more at ease. Maybe they're thinking, hey, I don't know who these people are. I don't know what they believe. I don't know what's going on here. But they like something I like, and that's cool. And we make a connection somehow. We work, a lot, we work really hard to pick these specials. I usually do up a write-up that kind of summarizes where I'm going to take that message. And I send that to Emily and, and uh, E. Uh, if I don't give them enough to go on to pick a good message, they'll push back for clarity and we work it. And Emily, who knows pretty much every song that's ever been written, comes up with ideas, floats them off of leadership. Truth is, we did think long and hard. Well, actually, we didn't think. We thought, we thought hard. We didn't think long about the song today because uh, it's kind of right out there on the edge, isn't it? But it fits so perfectly with what we're going to talk about this morning that we went with it. We don't always get everything right around here, but I do believe we got that right this morning. And I'll let you determine whether you agree with me by the time we finish our message. Okay, that's enough of that. We, we are entering, I'm excited about it, a brand new sort of uh, topic of discussion as we are walking through our book of Romans. Uh, to give to Griff, let me, just, let me just remind you where we've been. Chapters 1, 2, and part of 3. Uh, laid out the need for every person who's ever lived, whoever is living right now, and whoever will live, for a need to be saved. That we are all guilty of sin, we deserve nothing but judgment and condemnation from a God that demands absolute perfection for anyone to be in his presence. There's no way we can save ourselves. And in chapters 3 and 4, what we discover that we could not accomplish, God does for us through Jesus Christ. God's own son came down to earth, lived a perfect life, made a sacrificial death on behalf of our sins, and then God raised him from the dead to demonstrate that he accepted that particular sacrifice as sufficient to cover the sins of all people who would ultimately put their faith in Christ. Uh, and then he adopted us as his own kids. Then in chapter 5, we saw uh, that once we are saved by God, if we're genuine Christians, we can never be unsaved. We didn't get there by our own merits. We don't lose it by our own demerits. 
It wasn't based on anything we did at all, but on what God did. And God has declared he's not going to undo it. So the key thing there is, right, whether you're a genuine Christian or not. This then brings us to chapter 6. And the logical question you might have that others did have that Paul's addressing today because they had it back then was is this. Well, if you can't lose your salvation, oh Christian, then can you just get on the sin wagon? Can you just do anything and everything that you want and then God's got to forgive you because he doesn't have any choice in the matter at that point. He's already declared he's never going to unsave you. You probably know people who uh, make a habit of sinning all week long. <laughs> And think, you know, everything's fine if they just go to church on Sunday, maybe go to confession. But, but if you are saved and you cannot lose it, then can you do anything you want and God still has to let you in? So the answer is, theoretically, yes. However. And the however is Romans chapter 6. Let's pray and we'll get into God's word and see what we find there. Lord, we thank you for this book of Romans. <laughs> we thank you that you never let Paul get to Rome before he had a chance to write it because in it is all the description of what he probably taught new churches that we would never have been privy to had he not been able to be prevented from going. So thank you for this instruction you've given us, deep things that we would not know unless you shared them with us. I ask you to open our minds, our hearts today, reveal to us things that we did not know that we might be changed from our time with you. In Christ's name. Amen. So the riveting theological question for the day, uh, does Christianity promote antinomianism? My guess is you guys were probably planning on hitting Clarendons and talking about that after church today, right? Antinomianism. No? Yeah, okay. Don't be surprised. Antinomianism simply means this, against law. Early critics of Christianity claimed that if you and I can be saved by faith and can't lose it, we would just proceed to violate the law all over the place. And we would lead the way in the corruption and immorality and the unraveling of civilized society. How would you respond to that? This text we're looking at today will show that Christianity not only does not lead to lawlessness, antinomianism, but that Christianity does exactly the opposite. It actually promotes a right and moral living in a society. Romans uh, chapter 6 begins really a three-chapter discussion of the subject of sanctification. Don't be dismayed by the fancy-nancy word. To sanctify something in Scripture simply means to sort of set something aside for its use by God. So sanctification is nothing more than, than you and I as Christians being changed into the people that God can use more and more. The genuine Christian begins a process at salvation of God, you know, that's going to endure our whole lifetimes, frankly of God operating in us, operating through us, operating on us to make us more Christ-like and to deepen our ability to serve him. Chapter 6 here begins the discourse on what a person who is a true Christian needs to know is true about them and what happens to them at salvation. So let's just follow along here in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. I'll apologize up front on occasion. I've got to kind of get, get into a teaching mode. Uh, but to teach this chapter, you kind of got to get into the, into the, into the nitty-gritty sometimes because this chapter kind of walks close to the edge. You've got to be precise, right? It's why sometimes Christians will go their entire lives and never hear a message at all on chapter 6. It's one of the texts, I believe, like last week's. If you were not here, pick up that message on either video or podcast and check it out. 
but this is one of the texts I think that keeps preachers from actually teaching through the whole book of Romans. Uh, but I want you to have this text down for the rest of your life. It's important that it's in there. It's important that we get it because God wants us to have this understanding that he's given to the Apostle Paul about who we are, what has happened to us when we express our faith in Christ. We are meant to know this and have it locked down. So here we go. Romans chapter 6 verse 1. Paul begins with a, with a bang. It's the, it's the criticism of Christianity. If you're saved by your faith in Christ and you're secure in that salvation, you might think you can get away with doing just anything you want. And if you think you can get away with doing anything you want, you probably will. In fact, you most certainly will. So Paul asks, what shall we say then to this criticism? They're just going to let, you know, we're just going to be the cause of the fabric of society unraveling. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The thinking is this. Well, if our sin is completely wiped clean by the blood of Christ, if Jesus has forgiven my sin, past, present, and future, well, the more I sin, the more forgiveness I get. The more forgiveness I get, the more God's grace is poured over me. So, maybe I should just sin all the more. Because the more I sin, the more things I'll be forgiven for, and the more, you know, God will be glorified because he's just being so gracious to me. Woohoo! <laughs> what would you say if somebody came up with that idea? See, a lot of us would say this, nah-uh, 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 and that's about as far as we could go. <laughs> We know something's wrong with that statement, don't we? We kind of know inherently that that's the wrong conclusion. But that'd be about it. How would you respond properly to that thinking? Well, in verse 2, Paul gives you and me, Christians, a fact. It is not a fact that is true of some Christians and not true of others. It is a fact for all genuine Christians. Remember, there are people who claim to be Christians who really aren't. And there are people who believe they are Christians but are kind of full on themselves. But if it is a genuine faith, then Paul says, this is a true truth for you. Romans 6.2, by no means. We're not going to sin all the more. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In responding to this criticism of this thinking that's out there, Paul coins a brand new uh, expression here in this uh, verse that the Christian has died to sin. A genuine Christian's attitude towards sin has fundamentally changed. Ontology is the study of being. Jonathan Edwards, great pastor back in the 1700s, used to say this, that conversion to Christianity is the deepest ontological experience any human being can have. His very being is changed. What he used to like doing, he doesn't like doing anymore. What he used to brag about, he's now a little bit ashamed of. What he used to abhor doing, he now finds delight in. He's been changed. He's been born again. He's been given a new life, a divine life. He is now, in Paul's terminology, dead to sin. Now, this does not mean, and we'll cover that in a little bit, that sin for the Christian is somehow non-existent. If that were the case, we would all conclude right now that we must be the pretenders <laughs> or the fooled people because all of us here in the room as Christians have sinned, right? We not only sinned before we became a Christian, we have sinned since we became Christians. And my guess is most of us have probably sinned today. But the Christian's attitude towards it and perspective of it has completely changed. Dead to sin. Think of it this way. I did show you this video for a reason about the caterpillar. A caterpillar goes into its own cocoon, right? Its own tomb, if you will. And it emerges a butterfly. 
It's not as if the caterpillar took flying lessons or studied how to be a butterfly in that cocoon. It's not just because he wants to be a butterfly. The caterpillar changes ontologically. His very being is no longer what it used to be. He dies to being a caterpillar. And now he lives to being a butterfly. Can a butterfly go back to being a caterpillar? (laughs) I don't think so. Should he go back to being a caterpillar? Not really the issue. Can he? No, it's going to be a really silly looking butterfly if he's crawling around with all the caterpillars, right? He's changed. He cannot go back. He is dead to caterpillishness. I don't know if that's a real word, but if it's not, I just made one up and we'll see it in the dictionary at some point. Paul says, can a Christian, a genuine Christian, go back to his old way of life? Not really and enjoy it. Should he? Not really the issue. Can he? He really can't because he has died to sin. We've ontologically, in a spiritual sense, changed. See, the idea of Christianity is not that it's just a belief system that we try to adopt or a behavior system that we try to adhere to. Christianity is not just a bunch of moral codes that we try to follow. It's not merely the life of Christ that we look at and try to emulate. All those things are sort of packaged into the aspect of being a Christian, but it's not merely those things. Christianity is doing those things because you have died to what you were, and now you are alive to God. You have a new type of life. Paul said it this way in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in my body, my flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So, can a Christian just go off and sin willy-nilly? Paul says, no, no, he cannot. He cannot keep on sinning as if nothing has changed any more than a bullfrog can go back to being a tadpole. He has changed. He's become a new creation. No, you can't do that. What you used to love, you don't really love that much anymore. Verse 3, Paul's going to talk about the means. How does this thing happen that we're talking about? How can a human being be so different, be so changed? Jesus once said to Nicodemus, you got to be born again to get into the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus asks incredulously, okay, how does one get back into their mother's womb and be born again? See, it, it just didn't register to him. And this was kind of amazing because it's an Old Testament thing that for you to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be washed clean of your sin and be given a new heart by the Spirit of God. That's Old Testament theology, not New Testament theology. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, the 70 religious leaders of the nation of Israel. This guy had memorized every word of the Old Testament, and yet he did not comprehend it. Baffled, he asked, how do you get back into your mom's womb? Let me ask you. If, I think I've got a great slide up here. If you were Chris Farley, and you could go back into your mother's womb and come back as a little girl like this. I don't, you don't think it looks like Chris Farley? I think it does. Anyway, would it help you if you could get back into your mother's womb and come back? Chris Farley, come back as a little girl. Would it help you? No, it wouldn't help you at all. It'd be like trying to dig your way out of a prison cell only to surface and all you've done is dig yourself into the next prison cell, right? You've got merely a new cell. You must be, Jesus says, born of God. 
You must be born from above. Nicodemus did not grasp that. Human beings don't generally grasp that. Paul not only grasps it, but he's able to kind of explain it to us, which he does in verses 3 and 4. He kind of turns the light on for us and tells us why it is. Why is it that a genuine Christian is a new creation? He starts off this way. Do you, do you not know? Do you not know? Paul's going to use this phrase twice in this chapter. It's as if this critic that he's responding to is totally oblivious as to what a Christian really is. My guess is a lot of Christians are oblivious as to what a Christian really is. See, the guy who says to you, if you're saved, can't you just go in and sin? That, that might sound very logical to that person as a logical conclusion, but what it, re- what it actually shows is that that person has no real concept of what a Christian really is. Do you not know, Paul says, that all of us, again, that's important. You hear that? Do you not know that all of us, he's talking to Christians, this is not some of us. If you are a Christian, this is true of you. Do you not know that all of us, true Christians, right? Not a command either. It's not telling you to do something. It's simply stating a fact. This is true. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus? Let's stop right there because Paul coins yet another new phrase. Baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, you, you, you know this already. The sacraments of the church that we have, baptism, communion, you know that when you put your faith in Christ, one of the first things that happens, the typical physical illustration of what has happened to you spiritually is for us as a church to baptize you. All the way through the book of Acts, the account of the early church, when people became Christians, they would baptize them. And Paul is saying here that you are baptized into Christ. That's what happens in the spiritual dimension. The physical baptism is just a picture of that. And this is important. When you become a Christian, you don't just adopt a belief system. You are now placed into Christ. You are part of a divine life. You are in Christ. I tried to think about what would help make this stick for you. So maybe, maybe this will help. I, I had the video of the skin graft, little kid getting skin graft at the beginning of the service. When you place your faith in Christ, you're, you're kind of like a skin graft. You, you take that skin and you put it on another body and it becomes, if it, if it, if it attaches, it becomes part of the new body. It, it adapts to that new life. Or maybe even better, it's, it's like an organ transplant. You take a kidney from one person, put it into another person, and that kidney takes on the life of the other body. Andrew Messner, right? Got a new liver last month, praise God. But that liver is now functioning in the life of Andrew. That, that, that liver no longer belongs to, is no longer attached to the old body. It has died to that original body. It now lives in Andrew's. It draws its life from Andrew's body. Now that's what a Christian lives. He is transferred from darkness into Christ and he draws his life from Christ's life. He flourishes because of drawing from Christ's life. Do you not know, Paul asks. It appears that some didn't. I don't think there are people, I think there are people today that don't really understand it. They see Christianity as comparable to Buddhism or Islam. We're simply following the, teacher, the teachings of our guru. They follow Muhammad or Buddha. We follow Christ. Same, same, same. While a certain aspect of that is true in terms of our following Christ, it is infinitely inadequate because a Muslim is not in the life of Muhammad. A Buddhist is not in the life of Gautama Buddha. 
And if you were, guess what? It would not help you because they are both humans and they're both sinners just like us. We are not just followers of Christ. We've been placed in him when we have placed our trust in him and we've taken on his life. What was true of him, what is true of him becomes true of us. Paul says, don't, don't, don't you know? <laughs> don't you know that it is a life? And there's more. We who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We share Christ's death. He died to the penalty of sin. We died to the penalty of sin when we were baptized into him. He died and rose in victory over what I did. So I don't have to worry about facing God anymore. Right? My sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So he died for me and his death for my sin because I am in him. It's as if I've died to my sin too. But in verse 4, we not only share in his death, but look at the very last word in verse 4. Is it up there? Verse 4. See the last word? Life. We're buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order. I mean, the reason we were baptized with him into his death, there's a reason for that. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We not only share in Christ's death and the benefits of his death, but we are to be raised with new life. Aren't you glad when you're baptized you don't just stay under until you're dead? I mean, they bring you back up, right? There's, there's, a, there's a, symboli, a, sim, a, a symbolism there. You're dying to the old self. You're dying to yourself and you are being raised. You're being metamorphosized. You're being changed ontologically, right? But Jesus, who died, didn't stay dead either. He rose from the dead in newness of life. In Christ, we're to do the same. Caterpillars, dying to being caterpillars and raised to be butterflies. Can you be a genuine Christian and enjoy the benefits of his death, him paying the penalty for our sin and not enjoy the benefits of his life? Is that even possible? To have the benefit of forgiveness but not the benefit of new life? Do you really, as a Christian, have an option there? I want to be a Christian, plan B. Love that forgiveness idea. Love it to death. Love it a whole lot. I will take that option. But that new life thing, eh, doesn't really turn me on that much. I think I'll just stick with living my life the way I want to and then just getting forgiveness all along the path. Question, is that a possibility? Can you opt out of newness of life like that? Can, can the caterpillar emerge and still live like a caterpillar? Well, we normally die, but we were buried with him by baptism into death, but we are to walk in newness of life. Now listen, again, that right there is not a command. It's not something you're supposed to do. It is simply, merely a fact of life. I'm sorry if you thought it was a command that you could ignore. It's not a command. It's simply reality for genuine Christians. Real Christians walk in newness of life because they share Christ's life. It's a fact. Jesus dies, is buried, and raised. The believer, by faith in Christ, dies to his old life, is buried symbolically, and is raised to life on the other side. It's a fact. I've been crucified with Christ. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
you are dying, then you come up in newness of life to bear much fruit. See, our faith in Christ means that we are dying to our old self, the caterpillar, and being raised to new life, the butterfly. We've died and we're being raised as new creations to share his life. That's why you hear testimonies that go something like this. Well, I put my faith in Christ as the Son of God and Savior, and I felt this incredible joy in my life, and it was really cool. Knew I was a child of God, knew I was forgiven, uh, knowing my sin was washed away, knowing I'm going to be going to heaven, and then when I get there, I'm not going to be rejected by God. And then they, then they kind of take a deep breath, and they go, yeah, but I found out something else, too. That I kind of wanted to go to church. I kind of wanted to hang out with people who were Christians. I, I, I kind of wanted to hear the Bible preached. I wanted to read the Bible. And, and when I did sin, I, it just felt different. It, it didn't bring me joy like I used to. As a matter of fact, I was kind of, I'm kind of ashamed and I wanted to confess it to God and if I hurt somebody else, I wanted to make it right. I wanted to quit doing those things that God was not happy with, that I so wanted to do before. Now, now look, is that your testimony as a Christian? It, it is to be. Because what Paul's saying is you cannot have the benefits of Christ's death and not experience the benefits of his life. Because Paul says that is what a Christian is. He dies and is raised up with Christ. Can't have one without the other. If you know his forgiveness, you must have the experience of his resurrection too. You have new life. I can remember when I put my trust in Christ when I was 12, I had this joy in my soul that I belonged to God. It was really cool uh, that he loved me and that I was his child. But I also remember just like, oh, okay, all of a sudden I, I didn't hate going to church on Sunday anymore. I didn't have to just endure the message on Sunday. I, I, I like to be around God's people. Uh, something changed. And we look at verse 5. Paul continues this idea of 3 and 4, being in Christ and sharing his death. He says this, For if we have been united with him in his death like his, and uh, don't miss this word, certainly, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is not just talking about in the end of times. If we've been united with him, let me teach a little bit here. The, ter- the term united there really means to graft. means to graft. It's a word you would use if you take a branch off a tree and you graft it onto a branch of another tree. And this branch then takes on the life of the other tree. That's what this word is. If we have been engrafted into his death, Paul says we are certainly going to be engrafted into the life that that tree that Christ brings. The Greek word certainly is pretty key here. What it's saying is this. If you have been united with Christ in his death, if you've experienced the forgiveness of sins, you will in exactly the same way be united with him in his resurrection, in his life. If you know Jesus' forgiveness, you will certainly know, you will certainly participate, guaranteed, in his life as well. In other words, if you are not experiencing the benefits of, of new life with Christ as a Christian, you are certainly not experiencing the benefits of his death either. Did you get that? If you are not experiencing the benefits of new life with Christ, you're certainly not experiencing the benefits of his death either. Because both of those unitings, both of those engraftings are absolutely certain to happen if you are a Christian. You cannot, Paul says, have one without the other. Some of you folks might remember this, but if you're uh, not old enough, it doesn't matter. I still think you'll still get the point. <clears throat> Back in the 70s, when Jimmy Carter was president, anybody remember that wonderful time? President that managed our economy to 18% inflation. Not that I'm bitter. 
but he described himself as born again. And he and Chuck Colson, who was a guy who was convicted, spent uh, time in jail where he got saved, but he was convicted as part of the Watergate episode that brought down President Richard Nixon. But they both talked about publicly being born again. In fact, uh, the book that Colson wrote about his conversion to Christianity was simply titled Born Again. I think I got a copy. I had a, that, that was a, the copy I had. That was the title. That was the uh, cover, cover page. And people would ask those people, it got to be so, so popular to talk about being born again, that people sometimes interview folks and they'd say, well, you're, you say you're a Christian, are you born again? And people would have weird answers to that. Well, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a born again Christian like Chuck Holston. I'm not sure what that really means, but it got born again, got, got bandied about a lot back in the 70s. Um, I do know this though. Is it possible to be a genuine Christian, but not to be one who's born again? Not to be one who's been engrafted into the death and the life of Christ. Sorry, Paul says that's not even a possibility. If you've been engrafted into his death, certainly, absolutely, positively, it's going to happen guaranteed. You will be true of you that you will have the likeness of his life. It's a fact. Can't have one without the other. On this point, Rita Mae Brown and I totally agree. You cannot have death without life. So, does Christianity lead to increased sin? May it never be, Paul says. Christianity promotes lawfulness by the very essence of what a Christian is, that you share a divine death and a divine life. You have emerged from this metamorphosis as a totally different creature. Christians make better husbands. They make better wives. They make better fathers. They make better mothers. They make better kids. They make better bosses. They make better employees. They make better neighbors. They make better friends. Greatest thing that ever happened to a society is to be flooded with genuine Christians. Paul teaches very clearly here that justification, that forgiveness of sins that results in God declaring us to be righteous as Christ, that, that when that happens, it will be followed by a changed life. How does the verse go in James? You've heard it. Faith that works is dead. Faith that works is not talking about losing your salvation. It's talking about this, that faith that doesn't result in something means you never had it to begin with. So we, we teach straight up here that salvation results in change. What I shy away from as a pastor is this. I shy away from playing God and determining exactly how somebody should change and in what order and how fast. I found that the Holy Spirit does a far better job of that than I ever did. Here's the truth. But nobody accepts Christ by faith and gets baptized and is now perfect in every way. Paul's going to cover that a bit later in Romans, all right? But you ought to be able to look back six months, a year, two years, five years, ten years, and see how God is molding you, changing you, using you in ways that will give you ultimately life and life to the full in Christ, simply something Christ promised he would do. Okay, in verse 6, Paul concludes our little section here. Here's how we know that we share in the likeness of his resurrection, how we share in his life. Here's what it says. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's a mouthful, right? See, part of the aspect of our sharing in Christ's death is that our old self was crucified. That's another term that Paul has coined here. Elsewhere, Paul has used terms like 
old man or body of our uh, vile state or uh, body of our sin or body of this death. Here he just calls it the old self. He could have called it your bad self, I suppose. And it wasn't getting down to your bad self, but getting rid of your bad self. Paul says that the old self that we had is crucified so that our body of sin might literally be brought to nothing or abolished. So remember last, remember last week when we talked about how we inherited because of Adam's sin the guilt of what Adam committed even though we weren't there in the garden, even though we didn't commit it? Here we kind of see the same thing in reverse. At salvation, it's as if the sin and the sin nature, that old self that we inherited gets crucified with Christ on the cross. It's as if we were there on the cross with Christ and we are dying to that, that old self dies. Now, let's take a second and answer, answer a question. What in the world does this even mean? And what does it mean practically? Does this mean that sin for you and me is totally eradicated as Christians? That once we're saved, we're never going to sin anymore? We're never going to have a problem with sin? Is that what this means? And most of us are thinking, oh, please, God, don't let it be yes, because I know me. <laughs> Short answer. It doesn't mean that sin is eradicated. The context of what we're going to be talking about in this passage, uh, and E will get to some of it next week, gets to that. Paul's going to say in verse 12, for example, that we should not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. So sin is still lurking around. You know that as best as I do, right? But the emphasis in verse 6 has little to do with whether sin is actually around. It is around. We all know that. The emphasis here is that sin should no longer enslave us. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, before we became Christians, we were slaves to sin. We could do nothing about it. But now, as Christians, with new life in Christ, we don't have to be slaves to sin. We can be freed from being slaves to sin because something has happened to us. So what gets changed in our coming to faith in Christ? What's happening when we talk about our old self being crucified? Well, it's not talking about the presence of sin because that's still here. We all feel that all the time. You know it is. Um, let, me let me try to explain it this way. When you trust Christ, the penalty of your sin is removed, right? We all got that part right. Now fast forward. You die. Eventually Christ comes back. You're resurrected. You get a new body. When that happens, the very presence of sin in your life t totally changes. You, know, you don't have that anymore. You don't have that bothering you anymore. You're never going to struggle with sin anymore. But right now, in this in-between time, between your salvation and between the sort of new resurrected body when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, the presence of sin is still lurking around. We're still carrying around these corruptible bodies, this flesh. So what has changed? Well, the power of sin, not sin itself, but the power of sin has been broken. Sin still has power, but it no longer has the power to master us, to enslave us. It can't put demands on us. It can't control us. Our nature as Christians has altered. It's now natural for us, being supernaturally charged, being in Christ, it's natural for us not to want to sin. It's natural for us when we sin to, to grieve about that. It's natural to want to read our Bibles. It's natural for us, now that we are in Christ, to want to do the right thing. We have a new nature. Oh, oh yeah, you can still sin. <laughs> But you're going to feel bad about it. There's not the joy in it for you that it used to be. And there are other things that you used to want to, want to, want to do that you naturally sort of don't want to do anymore. And there's other things that you hated to do, but now you kind of find you like to do those things because you're being powered by this life of Christ. 
That's why we've been united with Christ in the likeness of his resurrection. Because the power of sin gets broken. The old self got crucified. Theologically, it no longer exists for the Christian. So having said that, let me clear this up. The Christian, by virtue of being in Christ, has a new nature. It's natural for him to want to do the things of God. Even though he still has a body of flesh that still gets up and rears its head up and messes him up. But what Paul has just said is that you and I as Christians do not have two natures inside of us that are equal and oppose. It's not like we you know, used to have a, back, a bad black dog and now we got Christ and we got a, a good white dog and they're battling and they're duking it out for control. It's not, that's not us as Christians. We don't have an old nature and a new nature. We're not Christian schizophrenics that had equal and opposite pulls. It's not like the movie All of Me, if you ever saw that movie, Lily Tomlin and uh, Steve, Steve Martin, where Lily Tomlin's uh, soul gets embedded into uh, Steve Martin's and, uh, and the two of them are fighting for control. If you, if you draw a picture of the Christian life, it's not, it's not a line down the middle with half black and half white and they're just fighting it out. The Christian is all white according to Christ, on the inside of that form. We are new creations. The problem is that the new nature is clothed in the old flesh. And that's corrupt, still corruptible flesh. It's natural for us to hate sin and love God, but flesh is still there. Presence of sin is still there. The flesh is still a phone that rings. In the old days, you just picked it up. But in Christ, you don't have to. The power is broken. But listen, the phone still rings. And I know that's true, because listen, you're going down the highway, how's this work? Some dude cuts you off, what is your natural reaction? What is your initial reaction? What's your fleshly reaction? Is it, well, I am, I am just so happy that I could be a force for good to allow you to get quickly to your destination. May God bless you. Is that what you do? <laughs> no. But you also don't do this. You don't follow a guy for six miles and look for an opportunity to cut him off and pay him back. Not as a Christian, as a general rule, right? Can Peter deny Christ? Sure. But what does he do afterwards? He weeps bitterly. See, the new nature drives us to that. You don't have to be enslaved to sin anymore. So, does Christianity lead to antinomianism, lawlessness? May it never be, Paul says. We have died to sin. Being in Christ, we died to the penalty of sin. And we rose in new life. We're certainly engrafted with him. We certainly have the forgiveness as well as this new life. We are freed by the cross and by the resurrection from the power of sin in our lives. The presence of sin, still there. But it no longer has the power to dominate us. It no longer has the power to master us. It no longer has the power to control us unless we let it. For the first time, we can choose not to let it. Next week, we're going to look at the very, very first command he's going to be preaching on the book of Romans. And it's this, don't let sin reign. Don't let it back to being king of the hill. You don't have to anymore. It's a little bit of a struggle, but one in Christ can experience victory in that. Because we have a power, because we are in Christ, that we never knew before we became Christians. So, if you know Christ as Savior, here's what Paul teaches. When you put your trust in Christ, it's like you have exited from a great dark cave. Dark in there. And you've entered a world of beauty and light and forgiveness and love. But as you're walking out, you sort of hear a noise behind you. You turn around... 
is a massive cave-in. It caved in behind you. And you cannot go back. You are a new creation. You don't want to go back. How this gets lived out is what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. It's exciting few weeks in the book of Romans. You want to make sure you don't miss a week. Let's pray.